Hey friends, if you wish you weren't hearing an ad right now, then straight after you listen to this episode, head over to watchnebula.com slash not overthinking with a little hyphen thing in between the not and the overthinking. So watchnebula.com slash not dash overthinking. Through Nebula, you'll firstly get access to all of our podcast episodes ad-free. Secondly, you'll see exclusive content from me and a load of other educational-ish creators. And thirdly, it directly supports this podcast. So you'll incentivize me and Tame to record more episodes. My name is Ali, I'm a doctor and YouTuber. I'm Taymor, I'm a data scientist and writer. And you're listening to Not Overthinking, the weekly podcast where we think about happiness, creativity, and the human condition. Hello, and welcome back to Not Overthinking. Taymor, how are you doing today? How am I doing today? Um, yeah, I think, I'm, I think I'm doing pretty... I think I'm doing pretty well, actually. This week was, uh, was an interesting week for the company. We, we just moved into our own apartment um, in London. Mm. So now we have a place where Lucas can live and I'll sort of live there 50-50 um, and we'll kind of work there and yeah, happy days. That's, that's, that, that's actually pretty cool. Uh, I'm quite excited for you. Yeah. Uh, have, you, have you added me to the guest list or something? Um, no, I think we want to do up the place and we'll probably have like a housewarming. And yeah, I think it's nice because like any anytime any sort of friends or family are kind of in central London, need a place to crash, you know, there we are. Okay, but you haven't added me to the guest list. <laughs> I'll add you to the, I will tell the concierge to let you in. (laughs) Oh, perfect. So it's not like a key that I have to... Uh, Not really, no. It's like a, no. Mm, Exciting. How has your week been? It's been good, man. I've been on call pretty much all day, every day. So starting, I mean, I leave leave the house at half past six in the morning and I get home at like half past ten at night and then I go to sleep and then I repeat the process. And that was for like four days in a row. But then I had a whole day off on Friday to make up for this. Um, And on Friday I kind of... I went into Cambridge Town Centre. I did some coffee shop hopping. I marked some essays. I did a supervision. I went to the Addenbrooke's pantomime, which was excellent. So I had a pretty packed day on Friday after these long ass kind of 15 hour long days of being on call. Nice. So before we get started with this uh, this episode, Tamor, uh, what do you want to do in 2020? In 2020, what do I want to do? I think top of my list is probably joining an online learning community that offers membership with meaning, with uh, <laughs> much to explore. <laughs> I am referring, of course, to Skillshare, uh, our sponsor for this episode. Uh, Skillshare, like I said, is an online learning community um, with classes, courses. What what are we we calling them? We're calling them classes. Classes. Thousands of classes. Thousands of classes on on a huge range of disciplines. Basically anything you can think of. Basically anything you can think of. They've got illustration, graphic design, photography, UI design, that's user interface design, creative writing, animation, fine art, music and video production, film and video marketing, productivity, web development, all sorts of things like that. Yeah, I think like, uh, I think the thing I think is really cool about Skillshare is is the sort of community aspect. And I've said this on the podcast a bunch of times, like in the past, when I was sort of trying to learn new things, like learning to code or learning photography, the thing that actually let me do it was the fact that I had this one particular online forum, um, with, uh, you know, where, where I could just ask questions and sort of, you know, hang out with other people who are also trying to learn this thing. And that makes a massive dis- difference. And that's like one of the best things about Skillshare is like, if you're doing this course, you also have this community of people. Sorry, if you're doing this class, uh, you also have this community of people who you can hang out with and, and kind of learn from. Yeah, that's very true. And uh, I've got my own class on Skillshare about how to edit videos. It's called uh, From Beginner to YouTuber, which I thought, you know, had a bit of a ring to it. Um, but every day I get an email saying, these are the discussions that are happening in your class's community page. Um, and it's people asking questions and other people replying to those questions. And occasionally I go in and reply to questions as well. So it's actually genuinely quite a nice kind of community feeling. I think you should stop paying, not overthinking for plugging your Skillshare course every single episode. <laughs> a class, Tamor, not a class. course. 
Um, <laughs> but yeah, my Skillshare class is one of the sponsors of this uh, of this podcast. Um, there's another really good one that I like by my uh, internet friend Thomas Frank, which is all about how to develop a productivity system. And he's actually got a new one for 2020, which is actually really good. It's about how to essentially habit forming and like okay. how to how to how to create good habits that stick over time. Um, so I've been starting watching some of the videos on that, and I think, damn, this is some pretty good stuff. So what should people do if they want to take a class on Skillshare? Well, people can uh, join Skillshare by going on skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking. That's skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking. Um, and with that, you'll get a two month free trial. And then the annual premium subscription is less than $10 a month. So, you know, for the price of like a lunch or like your Netflix subscription, you're getting thousands of classes and all sorts of things to help you learn, be a better person and learn more skills in 2020. Isn't that fun? It is indeed. What are we talking about this week? So this week, we're going to be doing a book discussion, and uh, you'll be very excited to know that we're, we're talking about The Courage to be Disliked, oh. which is one of the very few books that you've ever read. I that's, think that's right. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> one of maybe five books that you've read. Yes. It's, the, in, the, it's in the top five. In the top five. <laughs> <laughs> so the final two Harry Potter books are on this list. The yeah. Courage to be Disliked is on this list. Is, is there any other book that you've read? I've read the whole Twilight series. That's what, like three books, four books? It's four books. So maybe I've read like seven. Okay. <laughs> Fantastic. Where does Courage to be Disliked rank amongst the hierarchy of Twilight, the final two Harry Potter books and that? I think it is actually like, I don't think, I don't read that many nonfiction books as books. I read lots of articles and things. It is one of the few kind of nonfiction books that I have read and was kind of glued to. I'd probably like the only one and that had actually had like a ton of novel ideas and concepts that I was like, whoa, okay, let's, let's hear this, you know, that kind of thing. Whereas usually with like a nonfiction book, it's like, you know, it's just like reframing stuff that you already have seen in some different form, whereas this was actually like quite novel and sort of daring stuff. Hmm. So the title of the book is The Courage to be Disliked, subtitle, How to Free Yourself, Change Your Life and Achieve Real Happiness, which sounds like an absolute formula for a self-help book. Um, and I think it's a testament to the quality of the book, the fact that you've read it and rave about it, even though yes. your, <laughs> your whole brand is based around being a self-help hater. Um, <laughs> right, I don't think I agree with that. Let's, uh... Anyway, can you give us a summary of what, of what the book's actually about? And then we'll kind of dig into our kind of main points and highlights and personal reflections from it. Sure. So I, I might be forgetting a few details here, but essentially the book is uh, is like an accessible overview of a lot of concepts, uh, sort of psychology concepts um, from this guy called Alfred Adler, who was a psychologist in uh, the sort of uh, early to mid 1900s, I think. 19th century, so 1800s. Oh, sorry, 1800s. Okay. And I think these these two people, um, I forgot the names. What are the names of the authors? Whatever. Uh, the names of the authors of this book are uh, Ichiro Kashimi and Fumitaki Koga. Yeah, so um, Ichiro and, and Fumitaki, I think, basically kind of uh, wanted to make Adlerian psychology sort of more accessible. Um, and they kind of compiled this book. And it's it's a very interesting format. It's not like a uh, it's not like a traditional fiction, but the format is is like a conversation between a a student and a philosopher. And so, like just to set the scene, basically, there's this sort of young brash student who like goes to this philosopher's house, you know, guns blazing, saying like, "All right, old man, you know, you think you're so enlightened? Let's yeah, let's let's hear what you have to say," kind of thing. And then the uh, you know the philosopher will say, you know, something like. Oh, yes. <laughs> yes, young one. <laughs> yeah, no, that kind of thing. And then he'll say, he'll say like something. And the student will be like, what? No way. Like, you know, you're, you're an out of touch old man. <laughs> you know, <laughs> this stuff doesn't work in real life kind of thing. And so it's, it's this sort of dialogue. Uh, I think it's, uh, it's meant to be modeled after the sort of Socratic dialogue um, that I, I don't know if Socrates kind of taught through that way. I think, I, I don't know. 
Some something about Socrates. <laughs> yeah, that's that's very good. So essentially, it's, it's it's written as a dialogue, sort of like a script. So, for example, if I were to read you the introduction, it says, "Youth, I want to ask you once again. You do believe that the world is in always a simple place? Philosopher, yes, this world is astonishingly simple, and life itself is too. Youth, so is this your idealistic argument, or is it a workable theory? What I mean is, are you saying that any issues you or I face are simple too? Philosopher, yes, of course. Youth. All right then, but first let me explain why I've come to visit you today. Firstly, I want to debate this with you until I'm satisfied, and then, if possible, I want to I want to get you to retract this theory. Philosopher, haha. Um, and then youth talks about this, and philosopher talks about that. So it's a sort of uh, two-way conversation, sort of youth saying something and then philosopher saying something, and that's the format of the whole book. Um, and I guess while reading it, the 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 reader is supposed to think of themselves in the place of the youth, kind of asking this old, wise, enlightened philosopher, these difficult questions and really trying to dismantle his arguments. But as we see over the course of the book, the philosopher has some really, really good points to make. So do you want to kick us off, Tamor, with uh, what kind of the key, some of the key points in the book are? Yeah. And we're only going to touch on like a handful because this is a long book. It's a really good read, so you should definitely read it. And in fact, we'll put an affiliate link in the podcast show notes. So if oh. you buy it from that link, we'll make like I don't know, I think three pennies per purchase or something, something really? stupid like that. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. It's incredible. So if enough people buy it, we might be able to buy a cup of coffee. That, that's amazing. Yeah. Please do. Um, please do buy. I'll be curious as to how this whole uh, Amazon affiliate book stuff works. Um, okay. So the, I think the, the first concepts that the book presents is the idea that there, there's actually no such thing as trauma. Um, and this is obviously quite a controversial in your face idea. Um, what does he say about this, Ollie? So essentially, the first chapter is called Trauma Does Not Exist. Um, and and the argument basically goes as follows. Like, uh, the philosopher says that in, in Adlerian philosophy, there is no such thing as trauma, i.e. cause and effect relationships about past life events really don't exist. So a simple example is you might say, let's say you've got a cold with a fever, uh, and you might think the cause of that cold is the fact that you went outside and you weren't wearing anything therefore you caught a cold okay. um what he's saying is that this does not apply to that th this sort of model basically doesn't exist so for example there is no such thing as trauma of past experiences there is no such thing as it's it's not quite 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 as clear a, a cause and effect so in in adler's words he says no experience is in itself a cause of our, our success or failure we do not suffer from the shock of our experience, the so-called trauma, but instead we make out of them whatever suits our purposes. We are not determined by our experiences, but the meaning we give them is self-determining. And then the youth says, so we make of them whatever suits our purposes. Then the philosopher says, exactly. Focus on the point Adler is making here when he refers to the self being, uh, when he refers to the self being determined not by our experiences, but by the meaning that we give them. Um, your life is not something someone gives you, but something you choose yourself and you're the one who decides how you live. Can you think of any examples of like day-to-day -day stuff where our normal way of thinking would be different to the sort of Adler's uh, approach? So like, let's say... Okay, so here we go. Here's, here's the example that they're using. So the youth is giving an example of his friend uh, who was abused by his parents when he was younger and therefore he stays locked up in his room and feels socially anxious and therefore can't go outside to talk to anyone. Okay. So kind of reading on from this chapter, the youth says, okay, so you're saying that my friend has shy himself in his room because he actually chooses to live this way? This is serious. Believe me, it's not what he wants. If anything, it's something he was forced to choose because of circumstances. He had no choice other than to become who he is now. Then the philosopher says, no, even supposing that your friend actually thinks I can't fit into society because I was abused by my parents, it's still because it's his goal to think that way. 
Youth. What sort of goal is that? Philosopher. The immediate thing would probably be the goal of not going out. He is creating anxiety and fear as his reasons to stay inside. So essentially what the philosopher is saying is that this friend who is being locked up in this house and says that it's because my parents you know, abused me, that's why I'm too scared to go outside. He's saying that that's, that's not what's going on. What's going on is the friend is scared to go outside and he's using his parents as a kind of post hoc justification to that fact. Right. And I think this is particularly like, this is an interesting argument to lead with in this in this book because especially in the kind of special snowflake culture that we seem to live in, according to uh, certain people on Twitter, it seems like, we're all very keen to um, explain away things as being due to some past trauma. Yeah. And therefore it's a very, um, it, it's a very, it's a very hot take. It's a very controversial framing of this yeah. because like all, all, all of sort of the, yeah, the, the, the way that the entire sort of uh, modern sort of discussion around mental health is framed is sort of, it's framed in a way that kind of, takes agency away from the individual. And so uh, it's kind of like, you know, if you are having some problems, it's because of, you know, certain things that happened to you that may have been out of your control or, you know, um, one thing a lot of people kind of immediately jump to is that like, you know, uh, these problems are chemical imbalances in the brain and things like that. And so the, the framing is, is very much of like, the person doesn't have agency. Whereas uh, Adler's framing is completely the opposite end of the spectrum where it's like, the person has complete agency. Um, I don't know. I don't know where. Like, you know, I'm I'm not a scientist or anything. I don't know where the science really stands on this. I feel like this whole discussion is uh, the whole sort of topic is really about framing and 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 how you look at it. I'm sure certain frames are more useful in certain contexts than others. I mean, you've kind of as a medic, is there any like consensus on things? So there is some. The, there is some extent of kind of actual chemical imbalance in the brain as shown by the fact that antidepressants kind of change this chemical balance imbalance and that seems to sort of help some people yep but kind of the whole basis of cognitive behavioral therapy cbt is kind of goes back to what the stoics used to do back in the ancient greek days which was this idea that okay i mean yeah fine you've had this trauma in your past but it's now your job to not allow that to dictate how you're going to live the rest of your life and to kind of actively move past it and realize that you are in control and you can control your response to that trauma yeah that's ultimate that's ultimately the basis for cbt at least according to some articles that i read kind of exploring the, the the foundation to it and that's sort of what adler is saying as well he's saying for example that when we are angry it's not that something has angered us it's that we are choosing to be angry and it just so happens that that thing is a is a, de is a decent justification for that right yeah i think that's that's probably i mean i think it's a very good hook at the start of the book because like when, when you read it, it's like, whoa, okay. <laughs> this is like the opposite of, of the, the stuff I usually hear um, in terms of how, how it sort of approaches this. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and I think... I think anyone reading this for the first time will immediately bring to mind so many examples that, oh, what? So you're saying my friend who suffered sexual and child abuse and this, that, and the other, it's, you know, are you saying he's really making up all these reasons to kind of stay, stay locked up in the house? And it's, that's not quite what it's saying, but it's a very sort of interesting, nuanced argument. And I think this is a good, as you said, it's, it's a good hook. It's a good hot take to bring people in at the start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I guess it sort of brings us on to the second concept of the book, which is um, that we don't have emotions, uh, uh, yeah, our emotions don't happen as a result of things. We, we instead actually have emotions in order to serve our own goals. And so, you know, like you said a, a second ago, like if I'm feeling angry, it's because if I, if I'm angry at someone, it's because I wanted to feel angry at them. And I found some reasonable justification, like, you know, maybe they left the toilet seat up or something. I don't know. Um, 
and I wanted to feel angry. And so I sort of uh, internally used that incident, the toilet seat thing, uh, to kind of create anger within myself because I wanted to be angry. I think this one was, I, I really liked this because, again, it's kind of like the discussion here is not really, it's not really about like science. Like I don't think that I'm, I'm relatively a, a lay person in, in, in this field, but I don't think there is like, this is not something that science has figured out. Like this is why X, you know, this is why people feel this way, blah, blah, blah. I think all, all of the sort of development in sort of in this kind of stuff is different ways of approaching, you know, how we feel and how we think about stuff, different framings. And once again, set the framing of like, we have emotions to serve our goals rather than the op- the other way around is just really controversial and the opposite of, of like the, the framing that we hear generally. So it's, it's really interesting that we're talking about this this week uh, because this week I listened to a podcast um, as part of uh, Invisibilia. I don't know if you come yeah, across yeah, that. Yeah, I know Invisibilia, yeah. It's like done by NPR, sort of exploring the invisible facts of everyday life or some, so something along those lines. Um, but there was a, a really, really good episode of it entitled Emotions. And it was like this absolutely riveting kind of like roller coaster of a ride about uh, exploring the topic of emotions and how emotions are created. And it kind of ends with an interview from this like famous psychologist who's been studying emotions for like 25 years and has sort of looked at all of the evidence available for it. And what she says is that basically there are only four true, as, as in the, the only innate internal experiences our body has are pleasant and unpleasant and um, arousal and calmness. Arousal meaning kind of paying attention to stuff and yeah. versus calmness or peace or like uh, calmness. Yeah. Um, those are the only four emotions that uh, internal emotions that we're born with. Like our body has this internal sensing mechanism that can sense when stuff is wrong, but it can only categorize it into is those four true? things. Is this true? Like, is this agreed upon by As in, science? Yeah. So she's, she has like written a book that summarizes the research on. Okay. okay, stuff. So, okay. I, so I, the, I would the, imagine she, this isn't a like, this, this is not a take. framework no, no, no. or anything. This is actually, this is, this this is, is not true. a hot take. This is supposedly it's the supposedly summary true. of the last 25 years of research on okay, emotions. Great. Um, but, they then she then has has gone on to to research why we experience emotions like anger and sadness and this whole podcast episode is framed in the context of how sad should you feel if your child dies in a car crash okay. and it kind of explores the point of view of the mum of that child and also the lorry driver who crashed into the car to kill the child yeah and about how he experiences the grief completely differently to how the mum experiences it and the point they make is that all of these emotions that we that we suffer that that traditional thinking has been that, you know, these are evolutionary based, like for example, fear, you know, when, uh, you, you know, if back in caveman days, you saw a tiger or a lion or something, you would feel that feeling of fear and the adrenaline would get to you and, and that's fear. And we, we would right. say that, oh, okay, so fear has an evolutionary basis. Um, she says that that's kind of the wrong way of looking at it. It's more that we have these four in, internal experiences and based on our kind of societal learning, we recognize certain things as being anger inducing or fear inducing or sadness inducing. And she's done research on societies that don't have specific words for specific emotions. Ooh. And in those societies, people don't feel that emotion because oh, they haven't got the concept of it. Love it. So if you were in a tribe where the concept of anger did not exist, you would not feel angry about anything at all. Yeah. Even if someone were to punch you in the face, it yeah, would yeah, not yeah. be something that you would experience. Yeah. And so it, it ends with like, and everyone should listen to this. We'll link that in the show notes as well. Sadly, not an affiliate link. Everyone should listen to this, but, but it ends with this idea that this is a very, it's, it's a very liberating thought that all of the emotions, all of the negative things, even all the positive things that we feel in our life are basically a result of societal conditioning and the story that we are telling ourselves yeah. in order to manufacture that emotion of anger or loyalty or sadness or, or whatever. And so if we want to change that, we actually can. It's not 
evolutionary hardwired. Yeah, 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 yeah. And I think that's kind of the point that Adlerian psychology makes about things like anger and well, things like any emotion. Yeah. Uh, the example that they give in this book is the youth saying that, you know, the other day I was reading a book in a coffee shop where a waiter passed by and spilled some coffee on my jacket. Uh, I yelled at him at the top of my lungs. I'm normally not, I'm not normally the person, the sort of person who speaks loudly in public places, but you know, I flew into a rage and forgot what I was doing. And you know, that what the youth is saying that the, the cause is the waiter spilling coffee on his new jacket and the effect is him getting angry. And the philosopher is saying, um, that wait so you're saying that this was an unavoidable occurrence and you couldn't do anything about it and then the youth says yes because it happened so suddenly the words just came out of my mouth before i had time to think the philosopher says then just suppose you happened to have a knife on you yesterday and when you blew up you just got carried away and stabbed him would you still be able to justify that by saying it was an unavoidable occurrence and i couldn't do anything about it and the youth says come here he, he says come on that's an extreme argument the philosopher says it's not an extreme argument at all. If we proceed with your reasoning, any offence committed in anger can be blamed on anger and will no longer be the responsibility of the person because essentially you are saying that people cannot control their emotions. And then the youth says, how do you explain my anger then? And the philosopher says, that's easy. You did not fly into a rage and then start shouting. It is solely that you got angry so that you could shout. In other words, in order to fulfill the goal of shouting, you created the emotion of anger. The goal of shouting came before anything else. That is to say, by shouting, you wanted to make the waiter submit to you and listen to what you had to say. As a means to do that, you fabricated the emotion of anger. And I think that's really interesting. I think th th this also applies to being upset about things. Yeah. Like when we're upset about things, it's not the it's not the thing itself that's made up upset made us upset. It's a the story we're telling ourselves about the thing, and we're uh, essentially manufacturing the tears and the tantrum and whatever in order to make a wider point. Yeah. Like our goal is being upset. Our goal is not reacting to the thing. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. This is just like. It's just like the polar opposite of everything. <laughs> I don't know, just like what we consider to be like the normal way of thinking about things, which is things happen and we have emotional reactions to them. Yeah, cause and effect. Yeah. But there is no such thing as cause and effect. There is no such thing as trauma. Um, <laughs> emotions are manufactured because we choose to experience those emotions. It's amazing. I love it. Yeah. All right, so I think the next concept is kind of related. It's, it's the idea that unhappiness is something that we choose for ourselves. Do you have any Kindle highlights on this one, Ali? I think in this, what what the philosopher and what Adler are saying is that when we're unhappy, it's because we want our circumstances to be different to what they actually are. And we are using our circumstances as a justification that, you know, my circumstances are bad, therefore I'm unhappy. But the way that Adler says, and the way the philosopher says in this book is that at some stage in your life, you chose being unhappy. It's not because you were born into unhappy circumstances or ended up in an unhappy situation. It's that you judged the state of being unhappy to be good for you and by good he means beneficial like you know th th the story that you're telling yourself that you're unhappy it's benefiting you in some way which is why you are continuing to choose that particular yeah, yeah. framing of it um and i think sort of just riffing on this point like this is often like one of the things that the whole uh self-help stuff says about negative emotions like unhappiness and, and sadness and, and sort of fear and whatever is Think about how someone else in that exact situation might feel. And if you can bring to mind an example of anyone you know who, given the same circumstances, would react in a different way, that means it's really not the circumstances themselves that are making you unhappy. It's that you're choosing to be unhappy and you're using the circumstances to kind of justify that. Yeah, yeah. On, on, on the topic of choosing to be unhappy, I found a, uh, a good quote. Uh, I, I highlighted it on my Kindle yesterday. Not from the book or from elsewhere? No, a different book. How do I see my Kindle highlights? Go on the Kindle app. Kindle. And then use the hamburger menu. So, so you've got to actually open the book. Oh, dude, what a, dude. Click on next to the font. 
Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, it, it's 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 the phrase. Yeah, actually, so the, uh, this is a, bo- a different book I was reading, also related to this kind of stuff, uh, and it's in reference to uh, sort of the idea of trauma and the past kind of uh, affecting our sort of outlook on things. Uh, and the, uh, the the quote is completely out of context, but I think it's very nice. Uh, very colorful quotes though it may be putting it harshly it could be said that one is getting drunk on the cheap wine of tragedy uh and trying to forget the bitterness of an unfortunate now i think you know drinking the the cheap wine of tragedy is a really nice way of putting because like look the thing is um i don't know look i can only speak for myself but certainly i think whenever when i'm feeling like you know negative emotions in general whether that's like sadness or whatever there is i mean it's it is on the whole negative but there is something, <laughs> something nice about it. Not, again, nice is the wrong word. This, it's it's like a negative thing, but you you kind of get off on it in a weird way, <laughs> you know. It's, it's sort of like the enjoyment of the enjoyment in backbiting about other people and hearing the drama. Uh, yeah. You maybe, know it's yeah. a negative thing, but you're sort of getting off on it. Yeah, and I think like I think that's what this, I, I think yeah the, the, the of dr- drinking the cheap wine of tragedy is is a nice phrase I think that kind of uh, points to this concept. Yeah, so um, I was always intrigued when when my friends would say that they've got like different playlists for when, when they're feeling sad. And initially I thought, oh, so, you know, you've got a playlist that makes you feel happy. And they were like, well, no, I've got a playlist that makes me even sadder. And as, as if this was a totally normal thing. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and so sort of on, on, questioning them further, the, on questioning them further, they all kind of admitted that, you know, sometimes it's nice when you're sad to continue to yeah, wallow yeah, in that yeah. sadness. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I'm, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. There's definitely like a, a sort of catharsis to kind of, uh, yeah, just like dialing it up. <laughs> <laughs> all right. The next, and uh, this, is, this might be my favorite concept from this book, is the idea that all problems are interpersonal relationship problems. So this is the idea that like, any problem that you you think you have in your life, it comes from the fact that you have relationships with other people. And so it always like, if no one else in the world existed, you actually wouldn't have any problems if you had like some food and some water and some shelter. And yeah, I think I, I, think I really like this because certainly in, internally, whenever I feel like I have a problem, I, I always kind of do this sort of, uh, I, I try and dig into it. I always ask, okay, like, why is this a problem? And I keep asking why. And inevitably, if you have a, if you think you have a problem and you keep asking why this is a problem, what you will get to is something around like, yeah, some interpersonal relationship. I'm worried what so-and-so will think of me. I'm worried how, you know, how my friends are. Yeah, everything will eventually come down to it being a, a relationships issue. And he, um, Adler, apparently takes this a step further and says that specifically it specifically the the interpersonal relationship issue that all problems are result are a result of is um invading the 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 invasion of tasks Mm. um and this is a great concept in this book that is that actually kind of changed the way i think when i first read it which is the idea that we each have our own tasks like it is our it is our task to do the thing for example uh to i don't know Take our, our exam, whatever. Um, but it's someone else's task. Uh, it's someone else's task to kind of grade that performance or to be approving or disapproving of that task. So, for example, in having arguments with our parents, that is that is always a result of either someone intruding on someone else's tasks or someone having their own tasks intruded upon. And the example that he talks about is when a parent gets annoyed at a child for not doing their homework. Doing the homework is the child's task. And if the parent gets annoyed at it, then they are, you know, and tries to force forcibly make the child do the homework, 
they are invading on the child's task and therefore that's going to cause an interpersonal relationship problem which is therefore going to be a problem overall whereas if the parents were to accept okay you know i can lead the horse to water but i can't force it to drink you know i can create the conditions you can i can i can have a nice clean table for my kid to sit at and say you know here's here's your work if the like the parent can do their task of creating that condition but it's ultimately the child's task to do the thing yeah and the child's going to get annoyed if the parent is infringing on that parents going to be annoyed in trying to infringe on the child's task yeah and so every single problem in our lives is a result of infringing on someone else's tasks or having our own tasks infringed upon yeah i love this as well it's just and it's look the geniuses of this this book and this like sort of this this guy's sort of you know psychic theory it's just so daring like <laughs> very rarely i mean I, I feel like nowadays very rarely do you hear anyone try and peddle a stance that is like completely lacking nuance or like you know <laughs> conditions or like everything we hear normally is like oh you know you might believe xyz under these following conditions and of course there are these exceptions and you know all this kind of stuff like i just it's so rare to hear someone actually take a st- take a strong opinionated stance like <laughs> holy <laughs> yeah that every single problem is a result of task infringement yeah like, yeah wait a minute that can't, that can't be <laughs> yeah, right i've definitely got problems that aren't a result of task yeah. infringement hold on um <laughs> uh, <laughs> can't really think of any it's so cool man it's so look my life goal is to come up with a a, a completely like unnuanced theory <laughs> obviously like the bar is very high if you want to have this like completely this theory or this proposition that lacks sort of any conditions or nuance i think it's a hard thing to do i'm pretty convinced by the by the ones that this book um comes up with so yeah i mean every problem is an interpersonal relationship problem if you are listening to this and you think you and oh mate this would be this would be sick <laughs> if you if you think you have a problem that is not an interpersonal relationship problem uh tweet us at n overthinking uh, or you can like dm us to keep it confidential or whatever i'd be very interested to hear this i, I yeah I, I, in the next podcast we'll like read these out if anyone can actually think of any okay wait so, so i'm curious if someone if someone were to message us and say my problem is that i can't afford an ipad pro and i want an ipad pro okay how is how is that an interpersonal relationship problem? Okay, I guess this is kind of hard because then it requires a sort of asking of why until yeah. you get to the relationship thing. So okay, yeah, hypothetically, you say I want an iPad Pro. I was like, why do you want an iPad Pro? Oh, because it'll make me more productive in school. <laughs> why do you want to be more productive in school? Because then I'll pass my exams. Why do you want to pass your exam? You know, and, and so <laughs> on. Eventually, you'll get to. Because I want, like, I want my parents to improve me. I want, like, society to think I'm, yeah, you know, you know how it is. Don't you think? I feel, that, I feel like there has to be some nuance with this idea. Okay, I think the nuance is this. The nuance is if you're truly in a position where your basic human needs, um, I, I'm talking, like, r- really basic human needs of food and water and shelter. If they're not being, if they're not being satisfied, then fine. You know, <laughs> if you're living, yeah. If you're literally starving to death. <laughs> and while listening to this podcast. Why, why, yeah, why listen to this podcast? It's a good way to go, by the way. <laughs> you, I, I will accept that you, that you were not in an interpersonal relationship problem in that, in that moment. But yeah, I think everything else basically is. And I, I, I'd, I'd love to be um, shown otherwise. So yeah, do write in. Uh, so we just talked about how every problem is an interpersonal relationship problem um, and that every interpersonal relationship problem comes from either someone else intruding on a task that is ours or from us intruding on someone else's task. The next concept, which uh, 
I mentioned, I think, in the last episode, two episodes before this. Oh, actually, um, I've got a few highlights that I've actually highlighted on this. Oh, okay. When I first read it. Um, so the chapter is called How to Rid Yourself of Interpersonal Relationship Problems. Um, and it says that all you can do with regard to your own life is to choose the best path that you believe in. On the other hand, what kind of judgment do other people pass on that choice? That is the task of other people, and it's not a matter you can do anything about. Um and then the youth says stuff like, oh, but wait, so you're saying it's not my job to please my parents? And the philosopher is saying is, correct, it is not your job to please your parents. It's your job to do what you think is best. And whether or not your parents are pleased or displeased by that is entirely their their job. That's their task. And so all you can do is live in the way that you think is, you know, intentional or best or whatever you're doing without worrying about them approving of it or disapproving of it. Yeah. And then there's another one. Remember the words of the grandmother. You're the only one who's worried about how you look. Um, her remark drives right to the heart of the separation of tasks. What other people think when they see your face, that is the task of other people and is not something you have any control over. Anyway, yeah, um, that just, I think ties up this point nicely. Well, what was the next one? The next concept is this, uh, and I, I talked about this in the last episode, the idea of viewing other, other people as your comrades and stopping. I, I think like nowadays, like implicitly, we all just have this framework of like comparison and competition between us and you know, our fellow man. And this book has a chapter or two talking exactly about this, about how like we need to get out, get out of this mindset of seeing other people as competition and comparing, you know, basically comparing human beings and get into the mindset of seeing other people as our comrades. Um, and that one, you know, once we get to the point of like, you know, look, you look at uh, a sort of c complete stranger and you feel a sense of camaraderie with them, that sort of opens up essentially a whole new way of living. Yeah, so there's a, a quote here from the philosophers that says, it does not matter if one is trying to walk in front of others or walk behind them. It is as if we are moving through a flat space that has no vertical axis. We do not walk in order to compete with someone. It is in trying to progress past who one is now that there is value. And then the youth says, have you become free from all forms of competition? The philosopher says, of course, I do not think about gaining status or honor. And I live my life as an outside philosopher without any connection whatsoever to worldly competition. Youth, does that mean you've dropped out of competition? That you somehow accepted defeat? Philosopher, no, I withdrew from places that are preoccupied with winning and losing. When one is trying to be oneself, competition will inevitably get in the way. I think this is really important. Like, um, this is one that occasionally comes across on my, comes up on my Readwise, you know, that, that daily email that I get with five highlights. Yeah. And I always think, damn, this is something I need to work on because like, I don't actually care about competition within medicine, but when it comes to kind of the, the YouTubing thing, mm. I very occasionally find myself drawn into kind of like uh, sort of having this kind of internal competition, like finding other people who are a similar size to me and thinking, oh, he's growing at a higher rate or she's growing at a slower rate. Oh, this is great. I'm doing well. And mm. I start to think of it as if it's a competition, but it's really, really not. Yeah. So anytime that thought comes, you know, yeah. this book is one of the sort of part of the symphony of voices behind me <laughs> trying to that <laughs> kind of overrides this, this idea of competition. Yeah. And even... Even within medicine, which is inherently competitive and, and you, you know, where you're all kind of uh, a lot of people are applying for the same job or same set of jobs. There is a competition for, you know, places and you get like a score and, and, yeah. and stuff like that. I do. I still try my best to view it as a competition, like a game that I'm playing with myself as opposed to a competition where other people are taking part. Yeah. Um, and sort of on this note, I've, I've been thinking of a it's like actually, actually kind of unrelated, uh, so somewhat related. Um. I really like the the framing of exams, like, you know, school and university exams as being a game, like a game that you play with yourself, like a single player game that doesn't have other people competing in it. Mm. Because then you don't need to worry about how well did that person do? How well am I doing relative to them? And, and so on. Yeah. Um, but 
there is still an aspect of friendly competition within doing exams that I think is fine and is actually healthy. Yeah. And so I've been thinking of a way to kind of uh, frame this in my yeah, mind. How do you like summarize that thought? And so the thing I, I, I came up with was it's sort of like doing a raid in World of Warcraft. Oh my God. <laughs> so <laughs> if, you, if you're not familiar with World of Warcraft, it's basically this game, right? And <laughs> everyone has turned off the, the podcast at this point. <laughs> That's fine. That means I can explain it. Basically, World of Warcraft is this like, online game, role-playing game, where you create like a warlock or something, and you level up the warlock. Uh, Tamor and I used to play World of Warcraft back in the day. Uh, I even clocked about 180 days of game time on it. That's mental. Which over a four-year period was on average about three and a half hours a day. Nice. Between year eight and year 12 or between year year nine and year 13 or something like that wow um so this was my productivity guru back in the day (laughs) i was playing three and a half hours a day of world of warcraft for four years that's a very very long time anyway in world of warcraft when you get to the kind of final like the final level like level 80 or whatever it is you then get the end game content and in that you you form these raids um perhaps i think that's the thing in pokemon go as well but In in World of Warcraft, you form these raids where you get a group of 20 people together and you will work together to take down a particular monster. And within these raids, like you're all working together. So you're taking down the monster and everyone, everyone like progresses as a team. Yeah. But within that, there is a friendly competition amongst the damage dealers to to see who can deal the most damage to the boss. Yeah. Like, you know, oh, I got 8,000 DPS damage per second and this guy got 7,000. And you have this sort of friendly competition with one another while you're on the same team trying to take down the boss. Yeah. Just to see who's got the highest damage. Yeah. Equally, alongside the damage dealing roles, you have like the tank role whose job is to kind of take the hits so that he supports everyone else. And you also have the healer roles, whose job is to purely heal everyone else up yeah. and not do any damage to the boss, but they heal everyone else up and may help the whole team get through. Yeah. And I think this is a good way of thinking about exams at university. Yeah. Because like, you know, we've got me, my friend Jake, my friend Paul, like whatever, we're all consider ourselves consider ourselves the, the damage dealers of the group and therefore we will compete against one another <laughs> in that friendly small way to see who can deal yeah. the most damage yeah you can get a slightly higher score but equally we've got friends who are, who are more like support roles and their aim is not to get the highest score at all that's yeah. not what they're about what they're about is you know being nice and friendly and making sure everyone gets through the exams and sharing the notes and doing it in like a really nice and open way and <laughs> as long as they pass the exam that makes them completely happy yeah i think it's totally fine and that's like I think a good framing of dealing with this idea of exams is being sort of competitive, but yeah. also not thinking about the competition. Yeah, I think I think that's a nice framing, and and just to keep with the World of Warcraft analogy, yes, I think I think it also extends uh, outside of your own raid group. So you know, people sort of organize themselves into different guilds. You know, basically like little clubs that you can join with other people, uh, and each guild will like try and beat the boss. You know, before the other guilds and stuff. Uh, and again, it's like a very friendly competition thing where each guild wants to be the first guild on the server to kill the Lich King or whatever it was back in the day, right? Um, and so everyone's like trying to do that and, and you're sort of competing with other guilds for that. But for example, if another guild did kill, you know, if they got the, you know, world first killing the Lich King achievement, y- your reaction wouldn't be like, ah, oh, damn, screw these guys. Your reaction would be like, oh, whoa, that's sick. You know, and yeah. you're just like within a raid, if like, if like your best thing was like 8,000 DPS or something and someone else managed to somehow get like 12K DPS, your reaction would be like, you know, you'd have lost the competition or whatever, but your reaction would be like, whoa, that's awesome, you know? Yeah, so absolutely. It, that's like friendly competition, I'd say. And then to continue that analogy even further, it's like as soon as a guild has done the world first kill 
And as soon as the second one has come about, they will release their video explaining the strategy and explaining the fight for everyone else to follow. Yeah. To follow from that point. It's not a case of we're going to hold this to ourselves. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Once that competition for spot one and two is gone, they're more than happy to share absolutely everything they know. You can look at their logs, which they make public to see exactly what they did to get through this fight. Yeah. So that everyone gets through it together. Yeah. And I think that's a nice way of thinking about these sorts of exams as well. And that's why you know like you know obviously like sharing resources amongst each other and and stuff like that yeah i think that's a nice analogy for comradeship and yeah i said i said the same thing on the previous episode where we talked about this which is like you know we've all been in sort of scenarios or environments where we're sort of with a group of like close friends uh which you know feels like a safe and you know a safe space and whatever and and you sort of feel very comfortable and you're sort of vibing essentially i think vibing sums it up i've been told i overuse the word vibe on the podcast um but i think it's actually very helpful who's who's told you that um one of my friends who (laughs) listens (laughs) wait you've got friends who listen to the podcast yeah (laughs) damn yeah Yeah, so like um so I've also got a surprising number of friends who who listen to the podcast. Like they don't care about the videos at all, <laughs> but they're like, "Oh, I actually listen to the podcast." I was like, "What? What? <laughs> you actually listen to the podcast?" I'm always so surprised and flattered when anyone anyone does. It's yeah, funny, yeah, quite it's nice. always nice. Anyway, but yeah, um, we've all been scenarios where like you're with a group of people and you're just vibing, and it's like you know you feel the sense of camaraderie, right? Mm. And look, I said this on a previous episode. Imagine if you could always have that. Imagine if like you're on this like cramped tube with other people. And, you know, one, one like, framing of that is like, oh, this sucks. I'm, like, really cramped, whatever. Imagine if your framing of all these situations would be like, yeah, man, I'm just vibing with vibing with humanity, you know, kind of, kind of thing. Totally cool, man. Yeah. <laughs> um, that would be awesome. And so, like, yeah, I'm not there, definitely. But this, that's what this book is trying to get get you to a point of. So since you actually mentioned this on the podcast last week, uh, and because I've been on, on calling the evenings in the hospital, I'm often kind of, like, walking down a deserted corridor and someone turns the corridor and walks past me. And in my head, I've been thinking, <laughs> I've been kind of uh, doing a little nod and thinking, that's my comrade over there. Yeah, exactly. So I yeah, sort of, in my head, I think, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I think hey, comrade. So, yeah. And therefore, that just puts a smile on my face and I kind yeah. of nod be like, hey, morning, how's it? Yeah. evening, whatever. And just that the, that switch of, you know, nod, comrade. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's my comrade over there yeah, walking yeah, past. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's just quite nice. Yeah, I was thinking it today, like we were, uh, we were coming from Common Garden to King's Cross and there's like a long tunnel. Um, yeah, there's a lot of walking in King's Cross Station, right? Um, and uh, yeah, just a bunch of people walking this tunnel. Uh, there were like a, some youths who were like <laughs> kind of running, sort of chasing each other, kind of yelling at each other kind of thing. Um, and I, I just sort of th- thought, to, thought to myself, hmm, these are all my comrades. And I, <laughs> we're, we're all like comrades in this tunnel together. We're all like walking. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And I felt better. <laughs> it's, it's great. All right. So that, that was comrade. What's our, what's our next point from the book? Um, I think this sort of brings us to the final concept, which is that ultimately happiness is a feeling of contribution to to something oh yeah this was this was actually revolutionary because you know being a self-help um kind of junkie i found so many different definitions for happiness and meaning and stuff but this was the first time where i've really come across it kind of stated in an explicit way because everyone kind of says oh well happiness you know it's one of those things that you kind of chase and it's really hard to define and anytime you try and define it it kind of evades you but this guy literally straight up says happiness is the feeling of contribution as though like if you feel like you are useful to someone else or something else then you are happy and the sort of the pursuit of that feeling of contribution is what the pursuit of happiness is. I just thought, damn, that's really good. Yeah, that's awesome. I think I think that's a nice concept. I think it's not as dare. I think it's not as like profound as like the other uh, some of the other positions that the uh, philosophers taken in this because like 
happiness is such a fuzzy concept that like, yeah, you can say happiness is a feeling of contribution. And if you sort of squint, you can kind of see why that might be true. So yeah, I've heard people say things like, you know, happiness is love. And yeah, if you squint your eyes, you, you can see why that might be true. So I don't think that's as profound as something like every problem is an interpersonation <laughs> problem or, and, and that kind of thing. Mm. But I think it, it's, it's nice. It's nice. And then I suppose kind of the final the the reason the book is called the courage to be disliked is that ultimately the the point that he's sort sort of getting to is that in order to be free you need to have the courage to be disliked he says the courage to be happy also includes the courage to be disliked when you have gained that courage your interpersonal relationships will all at once change into things of lightness and kind of the point that he's making is that it's fine to not want to be disliked but inevitably we are all going to be disliked in some way or another and it's the way that we respond to that that dictates how free we are. Like, if you have the courage to be disliked, then you don't really care if people dislike you. You will do what you can. You'll do your task to kind of make sure you're not, you know, actively being a dick to someone. But beyond that, it is someone else's task. Like, but but beyond that, it's someone else's task to judge how they feel about you, if that makes sense. Yeah. And so that's sort of the crux of his, all of the stuff that he's kind of talking about. Um and then they go on to talk talk more about how to kind of live in the moment, live earnestly in the here and now and, 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 all, and all this sort of stuff. But that is sort of why the book is called The Courage to Be Disliked. Um, I don't think the title actually, it's, the title sounds really clickbaity. And I think I didn't feel like most of the book actually was relevant. To, like if you read this title, I don't know, look, how the hell do you title a book like this? I get it. Um, but yeah, the title isn't that relevant to it, but I guess it's, yeah, this is how it is relevant. How do you feel about, about being disliked? Me? Yeah. It's hard to say. Um, I think I'm a lot more okay with it now than before. And I think like over the past, yeah, I think like uh, a lot of my sort of personal development over the past few years, um, one way of kind of tracking it is to kind of see how how willing and, and happy you are to be disliked by other people. Um, and I think I'm definitely getting better at it. Um, yeah, I, get, I can't give you like a number. I'm, I'm, a, te- I'm, a, I'm a four. <laughs> I, I, can't, I can't articulate it. But um, getting better, I think. Uh, I think like, I think, it, yeah, the, having the, the courage to be disliked is kind of also the idea of like, you know, people say phrases like being secure in yourself. And I guess like insecurity is uh, sort of not having the courage to be disliked and kind of needing validation from other people and that kind of stuff. Um, so yeah, I think it's, it's, it's a framing of something that's that lots of people say in lots of different ways. What about you? You three? Yeah, I think I'm a three. <laughs> in, uh, in, uh, courage to be disliked. No. Um, so obviously I don't like being disliked, but I know that it's going to be inevitable. Uh, I don't think anyone likes being disliked. And I think the way that I think about it is that if I'm being, dis- if someone dislikes me for some wrong that I have done to them, then I would like to correct that wrong if it's, if it was unintentional. Because I don't like unintentionally causing harm to people. Mm, yeah. Um, if it was intentional, and then I'm, you know, I made the decision at the time, and it, I thought it was the right decision. Then, um, but if people dislike me, which I'm sure, I'm sure plenty of people do, you know, the idea of haters and stuff. Uh, on, on that note, there was a good Paul Graham article about this. I don't know if you if you read it. Yeah, I've read it. Um, it's this idea of I'm a tech bro, dude. Of course, I've read the Paul Graham essay. Of course, you've read it. Uh, it's an essay, not an article. Gosh. Um, but the uh, the what he says in this is that a hater is basically sort of like a fanboy and like he, he defines fanboy as being someone who is uncritically admiring of your work and just thinks that everything you do is fantastic whereas a hater so is, is sort of like that exact kind of mindset except all of it is in the negative and he says that by definition a hater must con- must consider you a fraud in some way 
like as soon as you achieve any level of fame or notoriety or, or anything at all then the haters are going to develop and the haters can't deny your fame but they can the story they tell themselves is oh that person is a fraud that's why he's so famous and no one else can see it and that's kind of like their reason for disliking you um the point he makes is that yeah as soon as you have any level of success or fame you're going to get haters and you have to become okay with dealing with it yeah um so for example anytime i see kind of tim ferris or gary vaynerchuk haters in comments on youtube it's all it's always about them being a fraud they're always like, oh, this person's selling snake oil. He doesn't really think that he's a fraud and, yeah. and then this, that or the other. So I think sort of being disliked at scale like that, I'm completely okay with. But being being disliked in sort of a one-to-one interpersonal interaction where I unintentionally cause someone harm, I would not be okay with that at all. Yeah. Yeah, I think that's a good point. And I, I was surprised you took the hater turn because I thought you were going somewhere else with that. Um, which is that, yeah, I think being this... I think I've had a few situations in the past where... Uh, I think other people have disliked me for what I would consider to be a misunderstanding. Like if, if some, you know, if someone disliked me for, for example, would you like to go into it? <laughs> um, it's, it's not that interesting and I have to like think about it. Okay, but, yeah, fair enough. Um, I, I know there have been examples of this um, and that I always find that quite upsetting when, when I feel like the other person has it, actually has it wrong and like, that you know that i don't hold the positions they think i hold or like i didn't mean uh something uh, in a certain way um i think i think i find i always find that upsetting but if if for example uh someone disliked me uh you know for things that i would say are accurate like you know uh you know positions that i do actually hold for example that trauma doesn't exist <laughs> uh yeah i mean i I think that's a framing rather than uh, a sort of objective fact. But yeah, if someone sort of disliked me for things that I'm like, yeah, if someone was like, I dislike you for X, Y, Z reasons, uh, and I looked at X, Y, Z, and they were actually things that were true about me and that I was sort of on board with, you know, decisions I'd, I'd made or whatever, I'd be like, yeah, cool, that's that's fine. I, I would actually be okay with that, I think. Mm. But I think that the sort of dislike that comes from things like miscommunication, misunderstanding, that kind of stuff, that's a, I think those are a, a bit of a tragedy. Yeah, I know what you mean. Yeah. Like, I wouldn't want someone to, to dislike me for, but be like, you know, all Ali cares about is being famous or something like that, because that's not my position. Yeah. And if they understood my position, they wouldn't think that way. Yeah. But yeah. if, you know, if they take the position that Ali cares a lot about kind of, you know, uh, being famous in some capacity, having a certain level of financial independence and is willing to put himself out there in a way that's not standard for the medical procedure to do that. And therefore I dislike that. I'm like, okay, yeah, fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. you can't argue yeah, that. Yeah. <laughs> fine. I really can't do anything about that. Mm. Um, so I think that brings us to the end of our summary of uh, The Courage to be Disliked. This is a groundbreaking book. You should all definitely uh, read it. If you haven't, we will have a link, uh, an Amazon affiliate link in the podcast description so if you do want to buy it please um buy it from there and we'll get some uh, some money fantastic and also if you if you're feeling very generous and you want to really support our channel then please uh, sign up uh, at skillshare.com forward slash not overthinking um that really helps support the podcast plus it's also actually like really good um i pay for skillshare even though they sponsor my videos and they sponsor this podcast and it's you know a good amount of money that i spend every every month like i'm not sad to spend that money i, I do get a lot of value out of skillshare and you can sign up to my own course as well anyway nice. uh, we normally uh, end with like reading a review and like a, a interesting insight or insight of the week are you reading reviews oh this is a great review 
this review is entitled Measure Over Magnitude uh, from Rob Sue One uh, from the United States of America. Uh, the review is, you guys are addressing topics with high measure, while many other podcasts tend to focus on magnitude. Things that impact the day-to-day much more frequently, but are not as sexy to talk about. Love the low-key, unscripted conversation format. What a great review. Oh, That's exactly fun. what I want this podcast to be. <laughs> fantastic rather than oh it's such easy easy listening yeah, yeah. <laughs> don't want that i think it's fine if it's easy listening um thank you to rob sue one for leaving uh that review right insight of the week what's your insight of the week i've got one while you think all right um my insight of the week comes from some blog post that i probably read a few weeks ago which was entitled do what you're going to do <laughs> or <laughs> something like that and it and it was the idea that um when we're doing stuff, we should do the thing, you know? And if, for example, when we're ironing our clothes, we should focus on ironing our clothes. When, yeah. when we're washing the dishes, we should focus on washing the dishes. And previously, like before coming across this, I would have thought washing the dishes and ironing clothes and stuff is menial time wasted that I should be listening to a podcast at double speed instead or listening to a song or listening to my should audio be being book, productive, yeah. Or at least thinking about my business in some capacity or another. But earlier today, I sort of was reminded of this. And then I actively took out my AirPods from listening to a podcast while ironing my the, the clothing that I'm currently wearing. Uh, and I just thought, you know, I'm just going to I'm just going to iron this. And I kind of gave it my full attention. And it was just quite nice. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and equally, whenever I do this with the dishes, like I actually quite enjoy washing the dishes when I focus on it. Mm. Whereas if I'm washing the dishes while listening to something, yeah. I feel like washing the dishes is an annoyance that I have to put up with. Yeah. Yeah. And listening to the thing is what I really want to do. Yeah. So that's something I'm trying to kind of do a bit more of yeah kind of do the thing that i'm doing that's awesome yeah yeah i've had the, i've had a similar feeling around washing hands brushing teeth in the past um brushing teeth is really good if when you get a new toothbrush notice try and notice the the new sensation of the way like the the shape of the new toothbrush kind of massages your gums it's it's amazing it's so cool right <laughs> <laughs> is that your insight <laughs> um my insight comes from a tweet i did a tweet that i done a tweet what I done, I believe, is, is the correct phrasing. Which is that uh, a couple of days ago, I bought a, I bought an egg tart for me and Lucas. You know, I, went, I went out to buy our lunch and I thought, okay, let's, let's have a little dessert thing. I bought like two egg tarts. Hmm. And so I had the lunch and then I was thinking, ooh, and a coffee and an egg tart. I wouldn't mind that right now. But then I thought, no, I've just eaten some food. I'm basically full. I just kind of would be having this extra food for the sake of it. If I wait one to two hours, the coffee and egg tart will taste much nicer. And so I actually did, and it tasted phenomenal. And it's just like being, I feel like, I mentioned this in the tweet, it's sort of like living in a permanent marshmallow test, you know, uh, where like <laughs> you're sort of all, yeah, just thinking about like the delayed gratification reward in general. Oh God. I, I think about that yeah. a lot with regards to food now. Mate, I have this dilemma every single day. It's like whenever I stop off at McDonald's on the way home for the drive through I think, right, do I want to eat this in the car where there's the risk of it kind of slobbering down my, my top? Or do I want to wait 11 minutes until I get home where I can sit on my sofa and really enjoy this? And I always eat it in the car. Nice. <laughs> Smashed it. Exactly. So I need to kind of sort my marshmallow test life out. All right. That's it for this week. Uh, thanks a lot for listening and we will see you next time. Bye-bye.